Hey, listeners, if you get entertaining anxiety, you need to get this book. It's by Amy Thielen, and it's called Company, and that's exactly what it's about, subtitled The Radically Casual Art of Cooking for Others. And honestly, Amy, you do make it sound so easy and simple and anxiety-free, the way you approach it all, and normal. Um, I think we ought to start by saying that, I mean, you've done a, a lot of, um, of writing, uh, cookbooks, um, uh, Food Network, television, and so forth. So you, you know what we were talking about. Um, you lived in New York for a while, too, didn't you? Yeah, about 10 years. And I, when yeah. I was living there, I was cooking professionally um, in fine dining in New York. You're right. Now, tell us, I forget what those restaurants were you were cooking at. Yeah, I started working for David Boulay, and I worked at his restaurant, oh, yeah. Danube, which was Austrian. That's in Tribeca. Um, uh-huh. I worked for John, John George Von Grichten at 66, which was his Chinese place. When that opened, I was the sous chef. And wow. then I worked for, yeah, I worked for Danielle Ballou, and then... Oh, he's a good buddy. He's Is he wonderful. a good friend? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that was at the height of, <laughs> remember when the, remember when his, his burger, his, I think it was $28, the burger, it was oh, right. had foie gras on it. <laughs> I worked oh. next to, on the line at that restaurant at that time, next to the cook who just made burgers. <laughs> I oh, ate wow. a lot of fries, a lot of French fries. And <laughs> um, but he, uh, he's amazing. He's like, he's like the last <laughs> person in a party to get up on the table and start dancing. <laughs> the, 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 thing I, the, thing I, the thing I remember about Danielle is you, you could always, you would always know where to find him at lunchtime. Where was lunch, that? At lunch, lunchtime, he was at one of his restaurants. Always, he just you, did the round. Usually, right? usually Cafe Boulou, but it didn't have to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. he, he would he would grab Anna after after we had lunch. He would get my wife's attention, and he would then bombard her with questions about how yeah. things could be better. If, if you, forty-five percent was it was it still good? And the answer, of course, mm-hmm. is it was wonderful. Always good. So you were well, his yeah, back to your book. Um, you, you. Let's set the stage here. Is that I mean, you live in a remote part of Minnesota, right? I do. Yeah, I'm 25 minutes from a grocery store and four hours north of Minneapolis. So it's where I grew up, though. You know, this is the. It's a lakes area. Oh, okay, so that's, so that's how you town. got there. It's that's how I got there. So I came uh, back. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't know, random. I came back home. Were you, were you somewhere near Marshfield? Oh, I don't know Marshfield. Marshfield, kind of up, up country, Minnesota. I don't know about Marshfield, but um, I'm right where the Mississippi starts. So Itasca State oh, Park okay. and the beginning of Mississippi River. That's how I tell people where I where I am. That's pretty accurate, yeah. right there. Oh, I, I remember a, a friend of mine when I was uh, in Indianapolis. Um, grew mm-hmm. up in, in um, Minneapolis or, or thereabouts, 
and and she mm-hmm. talked about how they would keep their hands warm walking to school. And it's just that it, one thing mm-hmm. I hate is being cold, and it just stuck with me. And and the, well, here so you are. You wouldn't like you're it. entertaining. You wouldn't like it here. <laughs> no, I know. But here you are, and you're entertaining regularly on a regular basis. And let's be honest, partially it's by necessity because there's really not any place for people to socialize and hang out except in each other's homes, right? That is absolutely true. Yeah, and it's just not a culture of that. There are some restaurants in town, but it's we don't have that culture. Like, you know, when I lived in New York City, you would meet up with friends by, hey, let's go grab some food yeah. or get a drink. And it was a very public culture. Here, it's just, it's the, it's the mindset. It's, the, it's what people have always done is, you know, invite people to their homes. And people do that with frequency here. Um, and when I moved back from New York City, of course, I was accustomed to cooking all the time because I had been a chef. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, party, parties at my house, right? I mean, yeah. and, I'm always I'm always up for you know having people over at spur of the moment or um, I just like to see people because if we don't have people if you don't invite people over you know you just don't get to socialize. You know, uh, yeah, I mean it, this whole idea of of having people over has changed dramatically from when I was growing up. Um, How so? You know, I'm curious. Well, they, I mean, my parents used to have pretty formal dinner parties. Mm-hmm. You take the formal out of this, but you replace yeah. it with occasions, which is how you organize this book. And, and I really think that was really fun about the book. Like you have, um, well, you have um, menus and dishes and concepts for events, situations like Saturday night, mm-hmm. um, holiday parties, um, casual walkabouts. I love that one. <laughs> yeah, those are the big parties. <laughs> let, let me ask about the, the, the chapter I just glanced at was one about yeah. cleaning up after the party. Yes, that's an essay that ends the book. Yeah. That was really so, important well, to well, me that well, that was included. Yeah, well, what, what what were the really important things about cleaning up that made you devote a whole chapter to it? <laughs> well, it's just an essay, but yeah, like you said, the the book is kind of organized by by amount of how big the party is and what the occasions are. So most of and all of the recipes in this book are organized into menus. Um, but at the end, yeah, I wrote about cleaning because for me, if you don't enjoy cleaning up just a little bit, <laughs> it's going to yeah. be hard to regularly inter- entertain. You know, it's going to seem like a hassle. And I just wanted to get down my thoughts on it because there's something really beautiful about, about um, buttoning that kitchen back up at the end of the night that, I mean, cleaning can be a drag and I don't I love it, but... There's something I, I feel a lot of pleasure out of just putting things back together and just yes. um, having everything clean and ready to go for the next day. It feels then like anything could happen tomorrow, you know. You could have somebody over. You could, you know, 
there's a pleasure in, in that routine and that it's kind of, it just keeps going, you know. Um, and there's certainly yeah. a socializing component too because I remember with uh, my mother-in-law uh, would take turns with the cleaning up and, and you yes. different people got their individual chances of communicating together um, it, over the cleaning up, the washing of the dishes and stuff. So it was personal. Oh, it can be very fun. Yeah, I mean, I have great memories of doing dishes with my brothers even. even My mom was a really big cook, and, you know, she, she dirties a lot of pans, and I do too because, <laughs> you know, the food hey, I do. That's, be kind I of elaborate. We know too. about that. Peter does that too. <laughs> yeah, my, my, uh, my, my, my cousin Michael's wife, Winifred, was always first mm-hmm. to the sink. To do cleanup, she was she, she was an absolute ace cleaning cleaning up her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I But the other thing I write up. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was Sorry. just reminding, reminding Anne of the fiftieth birthday party she gave for me. Mm-hmm. And after everyone had gone home, I continued to clean up, and I woke up at four o'clock in the morning, lying lying on the floor. <laughs> Big party. <laughs> Sounds like a good party. It was a good party. It was. Yeah, I mean, it was. We, we did the um, fifty major dishes for the fiftieth birthday. It was. It was a lot of wow. work. Wow. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work. That it was a lot fun. of work. It was a lot of work. I mean, cook. <laughs> with, I mean, my, my biggest problem was since it was a surprise party was, um, you know, doing the shopping and then trying to hide everything. I mean, how do you hide um, mushroom caps that you're going to stuff with crab meat and for 50 people? <laughs> Where do you put them? <laughs> so, anyhow, um, you have some interesting call-out chapters here. Um, and, of course, the thing that makes a lot of sense is make a habit of cooking ahead, which some people just never get that. Uh, and, and then you have this really interesting um, thing. We should probably talk about money. Now, tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, I don't – I wanted to talk about thrift because, you know, you have to have a mind to how much you're spending if you're going to be – a somebody who really actually entertains a lot, as I do, um, you know, you want to, that's always a consideration. You can't just, I mean, how much money can you spend on it, you know? So when I'm, you know, when I was coming up with these menus, one thing I'm always thinking about is, you know, the bigger the party, you're thinking, well, what can I do that's going to feed a lot of people and look beautifully uh, generous, but maybe not cost me so much? And so those bigger menus at at the end of the book, uh, well, one of them has a lot of meat. It's an asado, so that is expensive. But there are little ways around that, and I go into that. But, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of rice and beans and, and big foundational starches. Um, I just don't think it's sustainable unless you're thinking a little bit about what it's going to cost you, you know. And yeah. with the price of ingredients going up, you know, you have to be a little bit strategic, um, especially with meat. And there's a lot of meat in this book because it's a – well, I'm in the middle of the country, and uh, it's a very celebratory thing. But, you know, the cost of things is really different sometimes in the, in the 
country as opposed to maybe if you're in an urban center, which I mean, you know, a lot of times I get, I get um, meat and things from farmers around here and, you That's know, if great. you go pick it up, you know, um, I get chickens from the Amish. If you can, if you're willing to drive a little bit and think ahead, you know, you can stock your freezer with uh, big cuts of meat that you're going to use later and, you know, to feed people and it looks just so generous and beautiful, you know? You know, there, there's something that I wasn't sure I was going to ask you about, but I just can't, because every time I open this book, I, I get that picture of your refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's one of my refrigerators. I have four. I have four refrigerators. Yeah, but this one looks like the one that we had that we finally got rid of, but it was, I think we bought it, how, how many years old was it? It was really the oldest thing you've ever seen in your life. And finally somebody commented yes. on it, and I was embarrassed and ashamed, ashamed to go into it, buy a new refrigerator. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was, by the way, very, very, very old. Yes. Um, yes, well, I know the photo you're talking about, and it's a picture of my old um, GE, 1950s refrigerator that I keep on the porch and I bought that refrigerator from a local guy in town a science guy and he charged me $20 and a case of beer for it so, but <laughs> it was he, like he, traded he, you must, know? He, must, he must have been Australian he must have been Australian <laughs> no he's Finnish he's a Finnish guy and he's so funny <laughs> And the, I've the, paid a lot reason, in electricity for it. <laughs> Why the, the, reason that, the reason that I say that is, is that I discovered this when I got to Australia. You have to have two refrigerators, one to keep the beer. Yeah, yeah right. that's what it is, too. It's a beverage fridge, yes. Because you don't want your guests coming into your, rustling in with your, you know, amongst your eggs and milk looking for a beverage, you know. It's just I direct them straight to the porch Go to the best fridge, help yourself. <laughs> and that photograph also is of, it was actually the storage that for um, the photo shoot. So we had such a uh-huh. fun photo shoot here. And we have a box of wine on tap there that was really just for us staff. So <laughs> that's in there too. <laughs> I like box of wine, you know. There's a decent box of wine now. and. That's you the don't show the glass of wine. Gla- you, you have a, some kind of a dispenser here, but that's wine, I guess, going into that glass. Yeah. It's on well. tap, yes. Now, just to show you how you proceed with this, pick one of these mm-hmm. events and run us through it. Pick one of the, uh, the, the, the events and, and how you establish what you do during the event and the, the food. Just pick one. What's your favorite oh, let one? Let me think about it. Hmm. Well, there's a really good menu in there for my brother's birthday, and I think that's I th- in yes. the perennial party chapter. And that yeah. that menu it has um, kind of Southeast Asian flavors. It's got this uh, chicken. The main event is chicken thighs that are stuffed with sausage and. Uh, mung bean noodles and uh, lots of cilantro and and it's a chicken thigh recipe where you you stuff it with the pork and then you kind of nudge them up together and you don't have to toothpick them because you (laughs) because I over time I've made this recipe 
probably 40 times, and I realized that if you just smuggle them up together, they just fuse in the oven. It's okay. great. Um, and then that has uh, rice and uh, stir-fried peas, and they're greens, and it has um, a salad, which is like a fruit salad and cucumber, honeydew, and it's spicy, and it's got a little bit of fish sauce. And that menu also starts, though, with a corn and crab soup. So, um, and then it ends with a chocolate cake. It's an incredibly decadent menu, which has some, you know, some raw things and some fresh flavors, but also some, some big cooked, you know, a little bit more elaborate. Um, but it's still easy. And that's just a, a menu that I make for my brother because I know that he really cares about what he's eating. He's a, he's a little bit critical. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then, as a cook, though, you need those people because, yeah. you know, they keep you on top of your game. And also, it's, it's always nice to cook for somebody who really cares. You know what I mean? So yes. that's, that's a menu that um, if you want to show off a little bit, um, that's a good one. That's good. Um, yeah. the, I, I want to say that you simplify things, but actually – you do a lot of stuff that the average person wouldn't do, like make your own Katara um, noodles. <laughs> I mean, I love them. I've never made them in my life, and I'm I'm, I'm pretty experienced and you know mm-hmm. a, a cook. But I never would think yeah. of making my own Katara. Right? <laughs> First of all, you have to buy the equipment, right? Well, it, yeah, but it, you can find them online really cheaply. It's kind of a fun little thing to have if you've got the counter and if you have the cupboard space to store it. It looks like a little harp. And Yeah, it is cute. Yeah. It's very cute. And you know, that one I, I call it a work party because <laughs> you know, sometimes you want to do something where uh your friends get to get to join in and make things. And so that's a you know, if you're making homemade pasta, tatara, you know, that's a group activity. So that's that's one party where people are going to get their hands dirty and if they want to help. But everybody, most people do. They do want to help. So if you have everything yeah. else gone ahead, you know, they can kind of jump in and, and it makes it, it's really fun. Well, you know, we did this once in um, Washington, D.C. when we lived there. Um, that was yeah. before you got so much of this farm-raised muscle stuff. So what you ended up was you, you bought all these mussels and they had all that stuff stuck on them, you know. The and you had to use one yeah. of those. Yeah, and you had to use the, the metal brushes to get it off. Mm-hmm. And so I yeah. mean, when I looked at this, because it was a large group, a large party, um, that was my solution. Everybody that came yeah. had to take a turn cleaning the mussels. And that was that was fun. <laughs> Well, you know what, yes, it is fun, right? And in the summertime, when people come over here, I just look at, I think, oh, look at all these idle hands. And sometimes I'll just pick all the beans or fava beans or red currants, and I'm like, hey, you got, I dropped it. Yeah, favas, that's a good example of where you need help. (laughs) You do, and red currants are really hard. You know, I grow those. But boy, are they a pain to pick each one off. Or if they? you have, you know, eight people sitting around having a glass of wine, 
they do it really quickly. So save up your projects for that, you know. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I'd like to point out that, that, that and part of this is like the system of how you go about organizing and executing mm-hmm. on these dinners and these parties, dinner parties or whatever parties. Um, but yeah. you have some really splendid individual recipes in here, and you probably developed these over time, I imagine. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, mm-hmm. because they're, they're, a lot of them are classics. So, you know, you, do, you always have this, especially nowadays, you have to wonder about what, who's eating what and who's not eating anything. But you managed yeah. to use some of the classics and the basics but you always give them an unusual twist. Uh, I mean, I can pick out. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're they're very um, ingenious and inventive, and and people should eye this cookbook not just as in terms of the planning and menu development Mm -hmm. stuff, but also the individual recipes, which are very um, inventive and delicious too. Of course, why did I open this book? I just opened this book to iceberg. <laughs> Not my most iceberg. favorite thing. Oh, yeah. but, but, you know, hey, yeah. you know, it's back in favor, but you have your iceberg plate uh, salad, but you put on green chili dressing. You see, that's the kind of thing that pops up in this yeah. book, listeners. Uh, there's, there's a yeah. little twist added all the time. Yes. Yeah, thanks. If, yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of vegetables in the book. And so, you know, you don't have to make the menus as stated, but I find that, you know, menu cookbooks are kind of rare. Um, and I think that the reason that they have fallen, you know, people don't do them as often is because now we have cookbooks with so many photographs. And it can be tricky to, as in layout, you know, to, to do all these photographs and, you know, you don't want it to be a, 700-page book, right? <laughs> so yeah. that, was a, that was a really fun challenge for me as a cookbook author. But, but what, what, what we've resulted in is, you know, there are a lot of individual recipes that people can pull out and make. And I have a lot of simple, simple side dishes um, in every, all of these menus. You know, you can't, when you're coming up with a food to feed eight people and you want to have this beautiful table, you don't, not everything has to be like super complex, you know, like in the, the fried chicken menu. And then I also have just, you know, green and yellow beans with garlic. And they're just, you know, I talk a lot about how to, how to blanch and boil the beans. And then when, when this <laughs> is made with those summer beans, um, it's phenomenal. But you wouldn't make that, you know, in March necessarily unless right. you had a great access. But some of these recipes are very, you know, seasonal dependent, especially some of the really simpler vegetable recipes. But I enjoy talking about how to boil beans. You know, I was a line cook. That was like a huge part of my day was blanching things. And so I thought a lot about, <laughs> you know. And, and that's what makes food so delicious, just paying attention to the small, the details of cooking, you know. Well, part of the food that. community here, uh, there was one um, woman who was a food writer, and um, mm-hmm. I think she she wrecked my life when she wrote an article yeah. about how she how she uh, selected and purchased her uh, green beans. 
but hanging over the the pile of them in the, in the produce store, selecting them so they matched their sizes and shapes. And everything. <laughs> I never felt good yeah. cooking them again. <laughs> um, something else helpful here. Uh, one of the two things that are really interesting is uh, your timeline on Thanksgiving, because that to me is like the most difficult timeline in the world is doing yeah. Thanksgiving. So what what are your tips on that? Mm, I'm trying to remember. What are my tips? I mean, it's a, it's a two-day thing. You want to spread that work out, <laughs> you yeah. know. When I think about Thanksgiving, the first thing I do is I make that turkey stock. You know, that's this. The menu in this book for Thanksgiving is pretty classical, I would say. It's, yeah. it's pretty traditional. But I wanted to, I wanted to, to go into the details of like how to make a very um, traditional Thanksgiving that's very turkey centric. You know, where uh-huh. you're buying a good a good turkey. I get it mine from the Amish down the road. And I make the stock, you know, because once you have that stock done, then you have the meat for your dressing that you can't pull out of the stock, and you have all that delicious stock that will eventually become your gravy on Thanksgiving Day. And also it's the, it's the basis of that bread stuffing, which has a lot of butter in it, just fair warning here. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so I think that, the other thing I do is I always make the pie crust and the pie filling for the pumpkin pie, and I let the pie filling with that custard, that squash custard, I make it out of squash usually, um, I let all those pre, you know, uh, spices that I toast and grind, I let them infuse in the custard for a day and oh, wow. before straining everything out, and that really makes a huge difference. Plus, that's one thing off your plate, and so then you wake up, Thanksgiving morning, put your coffee on, tie your apron on, and you preheat the oven and you throw that pie in straight away, first thing. Get that out of the way, you know? Um, And it it just smells so good. You know, the whole house is just kind of set. The scent in there is fabulous. No, no, not not everybody uh, would be up for a a, a deer camp feast. Uh-huh, yeah. I thought it was wonderful. I just had so much fun reading it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have so so many unusual dishes in it. Um, like yeah, um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> listen, just listen to some of this. She she has whiskey, sour gelatin shots with potted <laughs> sour cherries. <laughs> How about yes. a chipotle cashew salsa with bacon? Fat, apricot snickerdoodles, deer liver mousse with pickled grapes on the vine. Now, that's a winner. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, so I guess what I'm really trying to say is um, that the basic concept, the con- concept of it, of helping you get organized and, and entertaining without anxiety attacks, is really important. But the, the you've all these really significant and time-saving and anxiety-avoiding um, tips on how to do this, not effortlessly. I mean, you can't convince me that it's all effortless, but certainly as painless as possible. Uh, and well, and, you and know, also the, the delicious twists that you bring uh, to some basic 
everybody's going to love um, the recipes. So Thanks, there's, you know, there's like many that. things in this book, many, many things to rave about in this <laughs> book, Amy. Thank you so much. The, the grapes are a good example of, of that because, you know, it's essentially a time-saving thing. I don't know if you grow grapes. I grow a lot of grapes. And, you know, again, it's something you have to pick every one of them off. It takes a lot of time. But I found a long time ago <laughs> that you can pickle them right in the clump on the vine. All you do is pour a pickling solution in there, like a sweet little sweet pickle, you know. And I just throw those in one of my many refrigerators, right? And <laughs> then I have that. I have those jars of pickled grapes for cheese plates and stuff for, you know, they probably last actually two years, really. Um, really? And they're fabulous, and they're beautiful. Yeah, they do. And they're beautiful, and you just pull out the clump and kind of shake it off, and you stick it next to your cheese. Of course, it does have little little pits in it, but, you know, you put out a little pit bowl, and um, <laughs> they're beautiful. <laughs> and it's really, it's what, do you, what do you do with all those grapes, you know? It's, way, it's the easiest possible thing. But you can buy them at the farmer's market, too, in the fall and, and do the same thing. What kind do you get? What kind do I grow? I grow, you know, any kind of grape that can survive a Zone 3B northern winter, which yeah, is I'll, surprisingly quite a few. Yeah. I don't think of it as, as a, a grape growing reason, except what is that? Um, the the uh, is it not Amari? The, what is the the the, the uh, wine in, in northern Italy mm-hmm. that? Or you freeze the grapes, grapes at it. Oh, yeah. Oh, like kind of like an ice wine or a dessert wine. I don't know what the Italian one is, but yeah, they, we've certainly... They cook with it a lot, and they yeah. freeze them practically on the vine. They do. You know? I know. I've always wanted to try that. That's something I'm saving for my retirement. I'll be experimenting with <laughs> ice wine. <laughs> they, 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 they do that in Canada... And in, and in Vermont and places like that. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Uh, yeah. And they, they, free, they freeze the grapes because that, con- mm-hmm. that concentrates what's left. Uh, I know. Well, it's lovely. Amy, um, it's a delightful book. And uh, listeners, again, it's, it's Amy Thielen. And it's uh, called Company. And, and mm-hmm. you'll get more different bits of information from all parts of the entertainment experience from this book. And I just just think it's a real addition to everybody's library, Amy. And you sound like having fun. Mm -hmm. Um, If you feel like it, I wouldn't mind being invited to one of your parties. (laughs) Oh, yes. Well, if you can get over here, (laughs) you're invited. Consider yourself invited. Are there uh, airports? I mean... (laughs) Oh, there are airports. Yes, we do. Great. Yep. Yeah, well, thank you so much. This has been really fun talking to you both. Well, yeah, it's been fun for us too, and um, much success with this book and with all your other ventures. <laughs> thank just, you so just, much. Just, just, to, just to tell you my piece de resistance, it was a goose yeah. that I cooked outside on Christmas Day. <laughs> oh, well, that sounds like something I need to think about and do. That sounds, you cooked it outside. 
Yeah, I, I envisioned the whole neighborhood the growing up in flames, grew. to tell you the truth. My, my good weather grew. <laughs> yeah, it, it yeah, was a production. Good to have goals. That sounds fabulous. I, I never, I never, I, our, son, our son said he wanted that again next year. I never, I never made it again. No, it was, you know, you have to, you have to drain a lot of that fat out or you're going to set the whole neighborhood on fire. <laughs> I, I, I was imagining some fires there. That was, that's a tricky oh, yeah. one, but it's, uh, <laughs> I bet it was delicious, though. It was great. Anyhow, yeah. that's it for today, and thank you, and have a, a great time. Um, it's coming into your entertainment season again, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Fall. Yes, right. we are. Fall is beautiful for that. Okay, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut down here. Okay, thank you. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Well, listeners, you're in for a real treat here. Um, this book is so big and so important that I'm not sure I can cover it all in just this one segment. Uh, the book itself is The History of the World in Ten Dinners, 2,000 Years, 100 Recipes. Now, if that's not <laughs> an awe-inspiring <laughs> introduction, I don't know what is. But we're going to be talking to um, the two authors, Victoria Flexner, and Jay Rifle, is that, did I do that, Jay? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and uh, do I have this correct? Uh, Victoria is a food historian, and Jay, you are actually a chef as well? Yes. Okay, yes. very good. Well, as I said, where to start with this? Um, I'm telling you, I, I, it's a real test because there's so much for me to grasp in this that reading it through once is really not enough. I mean, there's so much in it. Um, let's start with, um, I, I would really be interested in how long it took for you to write this, to research and write it. It was quite a long process. I believe we, we start, well, we started writing the book proposal in 2020. The pandemic gave us some, uh, some extra downtime. And um, we sold the book to Rizzoli in the spring of 2021. And, um, yeah, it took us about two, three years to put this whole project together. But it's also very much a sort of uh, physical kind of written version of something Jay and I have been doing for almost the last decade, which is a supper club called Edible History. So this yeah, book I wanted to ways, bring that up. Yeah, they, yeah. Uh, this is, is that, just tell us briefly version. about this, um, your edible history. Yeah, uh, we started edible history back in 2014, so it'll be a decade this coming spring. And um, we're based here in New York City, and essentially for the last decade or so, we've been doing um, pop-up historical dinners around the city, each one based in a specific time period, whether that's, um, you know, 10th century Baghdad or the medieval Silk Road or Renaissance Italy. Um, and so we've, we did that for ages, and then we kind of transitioned into the sort of writing space during the pandemic. Right. Now, um, 
you you have to select. I mean, this is a, a very broad subject. I mean, are you masochistic? You do. I don't know. Just a tiny bit. I mean, that's not really a question. I mean, but I mean, I wonder. It's it's just an amazing feat, and it's a very important book. And listeners, if you think you're going to be able to, to get all you want out of it in one reading, forget it. You're going to refer to this over and over and over again. Um, the concept. Give us the concept. Is it your turn, Jay, to do that? Certainly. I think the thing is there's a lot of cookbooks and historical books that focus on a very specific period in time, like Tudor England or ancient Rome, but there wasn't anything that was a, that had this kind of genuine broad scope that really had a through line of history that connected the various peoples and places and times and all the underserved communities and kind of put them together in kind of a new narrative supported by the recipes. So we felt like there was this really great opportunity to do it, and this book is like the child of that, really. Why did you think that was important? I mean, why why do you think that this is the key to to understanding the history that we're talking about, food? I think there's a direct connection with food. I think people are really abstracted from their own history and especially from other people's history. And food, like we always joked, Victoria and I, that food is the gateway drug to history in what we do. But there is a connection when there is that moment when you eat something and you think, this is actually the same. It might be weird to me, but this is the meal that someone was eating a thousand years ago or 2,000 years ago, and it's delicious, and it's a part of that culture. And I think it makes people wonder about what that culture was and want to learn more, and then they read the history, and then it all kind of comes together. No, I won't. I, I won't say that that is the easy part. I'm just going to say that I think we're approaching an even bigger issue: is how did you select the geographical sites and periods for all these and and divide them up into these chapters? I mean, that's a question. And then follow that up with if you could just walk us through the divisions. Let me do the first part and let Victoria do the the second part of that. I think the the short answer to that question is an essential feature of what we do is that we work from actual recipes and actual scholarship and actual documentation. So particularly when you go pretty far back, we are limited by what actual historical manuscripts exist and we can get our hands on, you know. Um, This was my next question, actually. This Precisely. is my next question, is what did you have by way of research tools to do this? Because we are so short on, on, on the, written, the written word about some of these civilizations and the food. Just we run us through some of the things. I mean, we the first cookbook. There was, was good historical research, um, and, and there are really good and well-researched historical, you know, recipe manuscripts going back to ancient Rome. Um, and you, somebody mentioned that there, there are even cuneiform tablets with recipes. Oh, there are, yeah. yeah. The, the, uh, the Yale Culinary 
tablets, which are, they have recipes. They do not actually, it, it's not considered a cookbook. Apicius from the first century BCE uh, in Rome is considered the first actual cookbook. But yeah, the, those are just a, a couple recipes in, in that Canadian form. And there was I thinking it was Mrs. Beaton. <laughs> <laughs> she was just a couple Julia, years later. Or Julia Child, for that matter. <laughs> well, um, so, I mean, you're limited in, in the actual written tools, uh, and but you, you, you got other kind of references in here from other sources, historical references. Uh, and then you broke it down, and let's just quickly describe the, the chapters so we know what's covered in here. I want to emphasize yeah. that you, 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 um, you actually cover a, a broader um, perspective on, on the food history yeah. by extending it to other places, and having different definitions of, of what took place. So just walk us through briefly these ancient Rome, Baghdad. Yeah, so it, the book begins in ancient Rome because, as Jay just said, what is considered the, fir- the world's kind of oldest cookbook is from um, the first century um, from Rome. And then chapter two is um, Baghdad. Uh, roughly from the 8th to, 8th to 13th century. Chapter 3 is the Silk Road. Chapter 4 is Renaissance Italy. Chapter 5 is Tudor England. Chapter That's a hoose. The Tudor a, England is a real hoose. <laughs> yeah. Okay, the next one. Talking thrice. Yeah. Chapter 6 is Al-Andalus, which is Muslim-ruled Spain. Uh, chapter 7 is what Jay and I have coined the Great Circulation, but is traditionally referred to in academia as uh, the Columbian Exchange, but we just sort of applied a, a, a newer term that we think is more kind of representative of, of what was happening in that, in that time period. Yeah, um, circulation is a good term. Yeah, yeah, that's a good yeah. Term to for kind of it, illustrate yeah. the movement of of foods and plants as well as you know people. Um, chapter eight is the Ethiopian Empire. Chapter nine is Versailles, and then the book ends in New York City in the 19th century with the birth of the restaurant. Yes, well, that covers <laughs> I say quite a lot of ground right there. <laughs> um, you're you're. When, when you started out with these um, and you had assembled your your um, reference material, um, you you had to focus on the background, which you do. You introduce each of these chapters with like an overview of, of what you're going to be covering. And then you also uh, do specific menus and specific recipes. And I, I wanted to point out, um, we're looking at this as, as, as a cookbook as well as a history. Um, you, you actually have recipes in here, but you, gratefully, I must say, you, you've adapted um, the, your technique in particular uh, and, some, of course, some of the, uh, the uh, ingredients uh, to modern-day home kitchen. So it's a usable cookbook, right? Yes, absolutely. 
Right. Although, I mean, as somebody pointed out in the book, it, it's unlikely that you're going to be doing some of these elaborate things like the all-black dinner. <laughs> <laughs> There's something in there for every level of, uh, of home cook, you know, from someone who just wants a sort of simpler meal to something that's pretty complicated, which I'm sure Jay can speak more to. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah, the technique, but you've updated the equipment and everything and how to, how to, the technique involved in the recipes, right? Well, absolutely, because, you know, throughout history, you have to remember that, you know, the most common labor-saving device in a kitchen was a slave or a servant, you know. It wasn't until yeah. maybe the 15th century that, you know, that medieval spit boys who miserably turned to spit all day were replaced by a dog walking on a treadmill. And that was like an amazing innovation. <laughs> so, you know, unless you have a team of people working, um, it's way easier to use a food processor instead of chopping something a million times yourself. Um, but I do try right. to make sure that the recipes, the final product, you know, is not a cheat. It is what I tried very carefully to do is to pick recipes that still work for a modern palate as opposed to radically changing the original recipes. They are as close generally as I can make them to the original um, experience right. with dyers, as, as, as well as we understand it, obviously. Now, there's just something else we should get out of the way right at the beginning, is um, this, this history is not totally inclusive, because um, most of these are um, luxury uh, ingredients and, and recipes. Most people in these periods did not eat like this. Absolutely. And, and that actually addressed in the beginning of the book that, yes, the, the, the recipes that were written down, you know, for people who were literate are already, you know, selecting for the – higher echelons of society. Like throughout history, most people ate, you know, stewed grains, basically, or basic breads and, you know, very rarely had meat, um, which would not make for an exciting cookbook, you know, yeah. as far as I <laughs> Gruel. <Yeah. laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, the, each period has a certain characteristic that you assign to it. Um, Mm. I was really surprised at reading. I mean, you have these wonderful sidebars and headnotes that give a lot of the history, um, which is something that a first read-through won't. You have to go back and, and really um, follow these and, and explore them, the little avenues they give you to pursue, um, such as pearl vinegar. I don't think everybody's going to do pearl vinegar, do you think? <laughs> Well, I'm, you know, somebody, somebody might, you know. <laughs> that, 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 that's, that's the one that Cleopatra and Mark Anthony. Yeah. Her the recipe that she that she's referencing is actually uh, references a famous thing where supposedly uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra bet each other that they could they could throw a more sumptuous and expensive banquet than the other. Um, and Mark Antony went first and threw this elaborate uh, banquet, and Cleopatra went second. But at the end, she produced a goblet of wine where she had dissolved 
a very large pearl, a very valuable pearl in <laughs> vinegar and mixed it with the wine, and then she drank that, thereby making hers more expensive than his. Uh, we don't know what kind of wine she used, however. But I'd like to. <laughs> you know, I, I never thought before, you have here on one of your sidebars a note on a lost herb. Uh, ah, I, 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 I didn't, doesn't kill you to find something like that where you can't resolve it. It, it drove me crazy. There's like, uh, again, the thing she's referring to is a, is a, a plant that was uh, used in ancient Rome and was incredibly valuable. In fact, it was printed on coins because it was such, it was such an incredibly valuable thing. And the plant subsequently went extinct. It's called silphium, and there's a lot of argument, you know, among academic circles about what it actually was, but um, it is known to be very similar to asafoetida, which is that kind of pungent spice you get in Indian cooking. So, you know, that's what's, that's what's recommended to use in place of it, and that is also something uh, that's derived, the sap, dried sap from the plant. Uh-huh. Now the the uh, uh, something that stood out through most of these periods is how um, the actual dinners, the banquets, whatever, um, they they were as much an advertisement for success and wealth as they were for anything else, right? And power. Totally. I mean, to be able to hire a chef who could make you a cock and thrice is kind of the ultimate display of wealth in the same way, you know, having like a designer handbag or a luxury sports car is. It showed that, you know, you had a lot of money to spend on people who were really skilled at, at what they do. Yeah, well, it, you, you introduced the term so that you can describe what that animal is. <laughs> I guess I should do that again, sorry. Uh, a cockatrice is a mythical animal, and it's kind of the centerpiece of our Tudor chapter. It was extremely loved by Henry VIII, and it is, yeah, believe it or not, it's a suckling pig sewn to a chicken or a capon, which is an emasculated rooster, and then stuffed <laughs> with more meat and spices and dried fruits and stuff, and it's, it's, it's horrifying. Um, and endlessly fun to make some videos. <laughs> well, I, I'd like to explain how 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 we met about you know we we bonded first over a couple things and one was the cockatrice. Well, I mean, I liked your description of this, what period was it where they did all the the, the four twenty blackbirds where they put frogs and pies and things. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny too. What what was that? Or England, yeah, yeah, it would be England. Yeah. Um, I was a little disappointed that you didn't mention that Rome uh, was the first one to um, farm snails because I I had this mad idea at one point that I wanted to write a book about snails, no matter that nobody <laughs> would want to read it. <laughs> I would have. Um, I started started researching it. You know Joyce Goldstein? Chef. Chef Goldstein. Uh, Well, she's from San Francisco. She was very very early into the restaurant business. Anyhow, um, (laughs) I told her about it. We were on a panel together. 
And she said, don't write that. <laughs> don't write that. <laughs> but I thought that out myself when I, was, I started interviewing people. And you know how much pathos there is around people trying to form snails. I, mean, I was getting all these really sad sack notes from it. I thought, I can't write this book. <laughs> I mean, people, they're, they're not easy to form snails, but anyhow. Uh, we actually were in Italy and went to a town that specialized in snails and the yeah, whole menu was snails. The, the town yeah. of Carrasco. Well, hmm. How about doing something with me, if, if it's okay? Is if we go through, because I said there's so much information, if we go through some of these periods um, and places, and, and you mention one thing that probably most people don't even know until they read your book about that place and period. That sounds great. Let's do let's it. Let's do it. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's go. go. <laughs> go. Call out which ones you want to do. Go ahead. Um, oh, you're well, is there anything that's, from... Uh, that's your wheel. <laughs> we, you have Rome. Uh, you can start with Rome. Yeah, we can start with Rome. I guess actually kind of uh, jumping off your, your, your snail concept, I guess maybe something people don't know about ancient Rome is that there were a lot of foods that were kind of farm-raised and produced on a large scale. So they had this condiment called garum, which I suppose today... Yeah. Uh, you might consider it to be kind of like equivalent to an Asian fish sauce, but there were actually garum factories that produced huge quantities of garum made out of different fish, whether it was mackerel or something else. There was kosher garum. Um, you know, there were different grades of garum, the way there are different grades of soy sauce today. Um, so there were garum factories. Uh, dormice were also a delicacy. Yeah, that particularly funny. What did you you described something they did with dormice? What did they? What's the recipe that uses dormice? Oh, Jay, what was it? It was like honey coated dormice. I don't think that one made it in. Uh, there's, I mean, there's the mythical one of dormice in honey, which is from the Satyricon of Petronius. You know, the first satirical novel, um, uh-huh. and that's actually the same place. The uh, from Malchio's pig is drawn from the same thing. And so it's there. it was basically lampooning a kind of nouveau riche show-off gourmand guy who was <laughs> making this very ridiculous uh, banquet. He's got the, you know, the, the pig with the fake intestines that are, that are actually sausages, but there's, there's dormice <laughs> cooked in honey, if I remember correctly. Yes, uh, it was. Um, that menu as well. Um, the the Silk Road is very expansive. How about Baghdad? Who, the, people may not know Baghdad mm. in the eighth, eighth to the thirteenth centuries, and um, I, I loved your con- yeah. yeah. It was yeah. It was a pretty spectacular period in Baghdad. Actually, it was yes. kind of Baghdad's golden age. And you know, we don't necessarily, unfortunately, think of the city this way today. But it was really kind of a, a cultural and kind of scholastic epicenter of the medieval world. I mean, it was a huge trading post on the Silk Road. So there were, you know, people and goods coming from all over Asia, the Middle East, parts of Europe, and North Africa. Um, 
but you know there were hospitals, there were giant libraries where um, scholars who were based in Baghdad, you know, were going to the West and kind of seeking out manuscripts written by ancient Greeks and ancient Romans, translating them into Arabic, and then not just translating them, but actually expanding upon them. So you know, algebra dates from this period of Baghdad, um, as do a lot of kind of medical textbooks that were in use until the 18th century, you know, throughout Asia, but also throughout Europe. Um, so it was a pretty momentous moment for sort of collective human knowledge. Um, and then when the Mongols um, destroyed Baghdad in the mid-13th century, a lot of the knowledge um, was sort of kind of moved westwards along the Silk Road actually to the Italian city-states, um, sort of following the spice trade routes. And once all of this kind of you know, information from Baghdad reappeared on Italian shores, it actually triggered the Renaissance. It was the rebirth of classical knowledge on the Italian peninsula. All these writers and philosophers who had been gone for many centuries you know, reappeared and, and a whole new intellectual movement appeared. So it's, I think it's quite interesting to think about this book as also there are threads that connect every chapter, even though we're moving around the world and, and through time quite rapidly, um, you know, it really is a, a, hu a, a story of global history that's very much Yeah, tied I mean, you together. point that out. I said that's important. Everybody thinks we're a globalized world now. We were a globalized wor world way back then. Yeah, exa exactly. We don't think of the ancient world or the medieval world as being interconnected because perhaps people didn't, understand, you know, in England where their black pepper was coming from in the 14th century. But they were consuming a commodity that was from India um, or, you know, cloves from the Maluku Islands in Indonesia. I mean, you know, goods were traveling huge distances. And so in that sense, I mean, you could even say that cuisine in the medieval world was a kind of a form of fusion cuisine because ingredients from all over the world were being used. Um, you, you also are really on trend, and now there's a whole a new interest in African uh, cuisine. Um, you, you, you point out, you have the section on Ethiopia that was very revealing, a big time in the 13th and the 19th centuries. Mm. Jay, do you want to talk about Ethiopia? Oh, yeah, I mean, the Ethiopian food, food chapter, I mean, the first thing I will say about that chapter is that Ethiopian food is incredibly fascinating to me because it's like every, every kind of culture of food has kind of an essential, like, underlying flavor note, you know, or palate. And Ethiopian food is basically defined by, you know, a spice mixture and a butter that's basically a compound spiced butter and also tej, which is Ethiopian honey wine, which is similar to me that you see in North European countries, but it's like really, really funky if you can find the real stuff. And it just runs throughout almost every dish contains these. So it's like the same way classical Chinese, you've got ginger, garlic, and soy kind of underpinning so many things. It really holds the cuisine together. It's a really, it's very delicious. I think it's, it's like 
misunderstood. I will also say that the injera recipe, which injera is the is the sour flatbreads that Ethiopians um, yeah. use as a plate, as as injera. you know, yeah. utensil as everything. That is one of the recipes that I'm proudest of. It, it required more testing than any other recipe, and it really? actually works. And it's not a ridiculous cheat. It is one of the more difficult recipes in the book, and it certainly was very, very Damn. challenging to produce, but it was uh, incredibly mm-hmm. satisfying. And then that, that, uh, that chapter basically focuses on a feast that is kind of the birth of modern Ethiopian food when, when the country was unified and the various cuisines kind of came together and the different foodstuffs from across the Ethiopian empire came together um, in this one great feast that we have very good records of. Um, a, a funny side note that along with the, the Tej, there was also a lot of imported French wine. This is probably, I think, 1870. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I know the date better than I. Yeah, I've, I... Yeah. I think it was yeah, eighteen seventies and Empress Tetu really loved was it Chateau Neuf du Pape? Um It was, yeah. Really exactly. loved, yeah, she loved really, really good French wine. So in addition to it being this kind of like amazing mosaic of all the different, you know, cuisine regional cuisines of the Ethiopian Empire, there was also some really good French wine. Yeah, I really, I I thought, I thought we 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 were all grateful to Robert Parker for discovering wines of the Southern Road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, you have some really quirky recipes like that, the, the fish three ways. Where is that now? That's oh, the, yeah, the bag chapter. I mean, to talk about that technical is, challenges. Go yeah, ahead. that one is incredible. That is a... Uh, that whole cookbook, I just want to take a moment to say, that's from a cookbook called The Annals of the Caliph's Kitchen, which is, which is from the 10th century. And you just have to step back and think for a moment that when cookbooks in Europe 300 years later, 400 years later, are like a laundry list of things without weights and measures, like take this and take that and take this and take that and cook it and serve it forth. And that's the whole recipe. And there's a cookbook that maybe has 50 recipes in it. That book is a monstrous tome that is, has hundreds of recipes. It has weights and measures. It ha- it's organized by sections. It has actual directions. Everything Victoria said about how the, that this was the most literate and forward-thinking place on earth at that moment is underlined just by the power of this cookbook. And the strange thing is it's also filled with stories and poetry and the original Yeah, that's what, uh, that struck me as odd. I mean, real poetry, not just dog roaring. No, I mean, like real serious poetry. poetry. In the middle, you know, it'll stop for a moment and talk about, like, the beauty of this dish, and, it, you know, we'll have a poem about it. And that recipe is you take a, a large fish, and you basically wrap the middle part of the fish in multiple, uh, multiple layers of oiled uh, cloth, and then you take the tail and put it in a very thin, heavily oiled cloth, and you bake it in. Those ovens are not like our oven so much. They're much closer to a tender oven that you see um, in, in India. So it's usually buried in the ground, and you make a really hot fire in it. So you put this, this fish in, in that oven, 
and you simultaneously roast the head, and the middle part that's protected becomes sort of braised, and the tail is fried. And then there's an even more incredibly elaborate thing where you actually stuff the fish, or just grind up the fish, and you basically make a stuffed yeah. fish first, which is just crazy. But that is a, that just the, the sophistication of that recipe just blows my mind. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the photography, I, I should mention, is really extraordinary as well. Um, I mean, as yeah. I said before, Resolute really outdid itself in producing this book. I'm now looking <laughs> at this stuffed carp in puff pastry, which is amazing. Uh, yeah, we should um, shout out our, we were so lucky to work with Lucy Schaefer, who's the photographer, and Victoria Granoff, who's the food stylist, and they were just an absolute dream to work with, and they made everything look so good. So, Can't say enough about um, them. Yeah, your, your Versailles chapter is also amazing. Um, and, and I want to mention, you managed to get um, some Central South American stuff in here too, which is a, a great civilization that you can't overlook, and, and you have um, them in the, your great circulation, 15th to 17th century. So you, you get um, indigenous ceviche and all kinds of things. It's a, a, a remarkable, extraordinary accomplishment, you guys. I must say, um, could we? Um, I have two questions, actually. The first one is, um, what did you discover in researching this book that was the most surprising thing? Wow, that's such a good question. <sighs> um, what was the most surprising thing? Hmm. I don't even know yeah. where to begin. <laughs> Do you have anything that comes to mind immediately? Probably I mean, all. It's, it's, it may not be one of the most surprising things, but it's one of the things that I learned early on, um, particularly like a long time ago when Victoria and I started, and uh, like we did tutor fairly early. It was one of the first kind of things we worked a lot on. And... I actually learned a lot about Tudor table manners from Victoria. But the thing, like when I started digging into that cuisine, the flavor profile of medieval European food, which, you know, I, I assumed was kind of bland or just a lot of roasts and spit roasts and stuff like that, is actually because they loved sour stuff and, you know, verjus, the juice of unripe grapes, and they loved these kind of, they were obsessed with, spices from the Far East. They actually thought they were from like magical islands, but that's a different story. Um, but not spicy, because this is long before, you know, hot, you know, capsicum peppers, you know, chili peppers had, had come. The flavor profile of, like, Tudor food is very similar, in my opinion, to, like, modern Persian food. It's very refined. Uh -huh. And it is just, that was not what I was expecting at all. But the more I cooked it, I was like, this is, this just tastes like I have no love person. So maybe that well, was one I mean, of the ones. Yeah, that's such a good point, Jay. Yeah. I think that something that is surprising is the way that what we consider to taste good has changed over time and how much of that is influenced by the stories associated with ingredients, especially when you get to the great circulation chapter, which essentially covers what 
you know, we probably all learned in school is called the age of exploration or the age of discovery, which, you know, isn't really a, a term that we know, you know, works anymore. But, um, you know, all of these foods from the Americas, like tomatoes and chili peppers and, oh, and yeah. chocolate and potatoes were all introduced from the Americas to Africa, Europe, the Middle East, and Asia for the very first time after 1492 and it just completely transformed I mean I think one might be hard-pressed to find any kind of cuisine anywhere in the world today that isn't you know wasn't transformed by the great circulation and, and the, the movement of foods and you know what people ate you know when these new ingredients arrived people were very suspicious of tomatoes in Europe you know it took almost oh yeah there was beautiful poison <laughs> Yeah, they thought they were poisonous. Was it an aphrodisiac? Did it cause leprosy? Um, you know, and then similarly, as Jay was talking about with spices from the East in medieval Europe and in kind of an earlier medieval period um, before contact with the Americas, you know, Europeans were obsessed with these spices from Asia because they didn't quite understand geographically where they were coming from. So there were all these sort of fantastical stories that were attached to spices. You know, they came from these far away kind of, you know, mythical lands. And, and so the spices themselves were very attractive. Um, and I think it's sort of interesting to think about, you know, why we eat what we do and, and what we think tastes good based on the kind of like story and meaning and value we subscribe to it. Well, now, can, can you explain pizza? Pizza. <laughs> um, I think pizza, you know, is is not uh, super historic to Italy. I don't <laughs> think it was really came around until maybe the 19th century, maybe yeah. early 20th. Um, and you know, it originated in Naples. Um, uh, it was right. my my understanding is that it was sort of a working class food. You know, it's very cheap. It's basically yeah. bread. You you could take something on. like anything put on bread or or dough, uh, or you could take anything made into a dumpling, and you could go around the world with recipes for that too. I mean, there's there's probably more than one way of approaching the historical evolution of what we eat. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, precisely. It's a really good Stanley example Gucci. of like parallel, like parallel culinary evolution. Um, yeah. where, you know, whether it's you know cacciatore from you know Georgia or, or which is very similar to pizza, and I don't know what you know whether one or the other thing. But also, there's a recipe in the medieval uh, Baghdad chapter for pasta. So pasta is another of these things that like simultaneously yeah. was you know figured out all over the world. Yeah, I, so I like that because I mean we we get so much of this Marco Polo stuff, you know. <laughs> 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 so, but um, okay, uh, I knew we would never be able to, to get to all I wanted to talk to you about in this book. But did you learn anything uh, in this um, in your research that would tell you what's coming next? Hmm. Jay, do you want to take that one? <laughs> I guess it's funny because I actually, weirdly enough, I came up uh, as a chef in in some like molecular gastronomy restaurants doing stuff with liquid nitrogen and spherification, and somehow I ended up coming full circle. But what I will say is that for the stuff that comes next, people still always look back to the past. And I'll give you a funny yes. example. Heston Blumenthal 
um, who was considered like one of the you know the most cutting. Yeah, we know Hassan. We've interviewed him a lot. Yeah, in the world. Also, did a Tramalchio's pig, like we did um, from ancient Rome. So people are always looking for inspiration everywhere, and I think past culinary history is always going to is always going to be inspiring to the chefs of today and the chefs of tomorrow. Well, um, this is a, a whole mouthful here we got in. <laughs> I, I, I really, I, I wish we could go on and on and on. Are you on to a next subject yet or not? Are you, are you already into another cookbook or is this it right now? Uh, we, we have some we, ideas. We have ideas. Yeah. <laughs> we have some ideas. It's sort of, it's funny, every time Jay and I research a new, you know, time period or kind of geographic area, we get like three new ideas spark up out of it. So um, we've got some stuff working. Yeah. Well, I'm, I want to thank you two again, Victoria Flexner and Jay Rifle. Um, it's just, uh, it's been delight. I just, as I said, I, I love this book. Um, it's beautifully produced. It's so informative. And it's, um, it's, it's really a great way of approaching our past and present even, I think. So um, lots of luck, best success on, on the book. And uh, I, I hope you come up with something you can write on again because it's delightful stuff to read. We'll have to come to so, one of your edible history so diggers. Yes, we you know. must, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure to talk with you guys. Oh, yes, and, and on our side, too, right, Rev? Yeah, yeah, I'm about, I'm about to close the interview down, though. Unless, unless okay, can... he's closing us down. <laughs> Thank All you, right. too. Thank Bye-bye. you so much. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you.